0: Alright, so, last week was kind of introduction and um, I hope that, that you found it helpful. We will try and get that up on, um, you know, so you can see it. Those of you that didn't make it last week, we'll try and make that available for you. This week, what we're going to do is that we're going to look at uh, uh, the way different people interpret prophecy. So, we're going there more and um, mm. try to understand why they take that position. And I'll tell you now that, uh, that the main reason, after, you know, there are all kinds of different reasons and, and uh, assumptions that people make, and we, we come to the Bible, you know, with certain assumptions ourselves. But to me, there's a really big a really big one that that towers over all of the others, and that is, do we try, when we read the Old Testament and understand what the Old Testament says, do we try to then take that witness from the Old Testament and cram it into the first coming of Christ? Because we assume or presuppose that the first coming of Christ is the most important thing and therefore because it is it's the most important thing all of scripture the old testament must point to that and must be made to fit an old testament perspective uh, sorry a a perspective of of the cross and the resurrection okay particularly the life and death of uh, of Jesus so do we take that tack or do we say well actually the Old Testament when we look at it and we look at the Messianic prophecies the Old Testament actually puts more weight on the second coming of Christ than the first coming of Christ and it splits the two up okay? or at least now from our perspective we know that it does so should we be in a hurry to find fulfillments in the first coming of Jesus Christ, which actually better fit the second coming of Jesus Christ. Because after all, the second coming of Jesus Christ, isn't that the most momentous thing? Not from our point of view, we might say, well, no, it's not actually, because, you know, it's the first coming and what he did at the cross was, that's the thing that saves us. So, yeah, from that perspective, that's true. But, But then from another perspective, when Jesus comes back, You and I are glorified. When Jesus comes back, our salvation is fulfilled. When Jesus comes back, moreover, it's not really just about us. It's more about him. Because he then takes up his rightful rule over the world, whether we're saved or not saved. Do you see? So, that's kind of what we're going to do. I'm going to start us off with uh, a quotation or two, just to get the blood going, okay? Um, the book that I'm going to use today is called Understanding Prophecy by Alan Bandy and Benjamin Merkel, and it's, uh, I reviewed this book when it came out, it's just a couple of years old, and uh, one of the guys is a, uh, a covenant premillennialist and one of them is an amillennialist, okay? But they've, re- they've written a book together. So one of them believes, uh, they're both covenant theologians, okay? And we'll study covenant theology next week. But one of them believes that Jesus will come back and set up a reign upon the earth, okay? So pre-millennial. Jesus will come back before, pre the setting up of the millennium. So that's that's one of the guys. The other guy's an R millennialist, and we'll be looking at our millennialism a lot. We did last week as well. Our millennialist it means no millennium. Okay? Although they will say to you, we don't like that term R millennial because it's too negative. Alright? Because we they will say, we actually uh, it's not that we're saying that there is no millennium it's just that we're saying there is no future millennium, okay? No future millennium. They actually believe we're in the millennium now, okay? You say, well, uh, it's two thousand years since Christ came. Yeah, well, they say, but but the millennium, which means a thousand years, you know, don't, don't take that literally, okay? Uh, don't be a literalist. So the R millennialist believes that we're in the millennium and Jesus comes back um, at the end of that, and then we go into eternity straight from there. Okay? What's interesting is that a covenant premillennialist and an R millennialist can write a book called Understanding Prophecy, and they can agree on most things. Okay? They can agree on most things. What are the kinds of things that they're going to agree on? Well, let me um, let me read it or some things to you and just we'll let it, what they say kind of sit um, in our minds for a minute. In the preface, they say this. They, they say, uh, differences of opinion do not reflect varying levels of intelligence or diligence so much as different presuppositions which lead to a different understanding of the whole. And that's quite right. Unfortunately, many people are not aware of their presuppositions and consequently do not have a firm grasp of how an individual text fits into the larger picture of salvation history. Um, The first thing I would say about that is that as uh, I detailed last week, you have basically four different interpretative schools when it comes to the end times, okay? So you have our millennialism. We're in the millennium now, okay? And there's no future millennium. Post-millennialism, um, we, are, we are, the church is actually building the millennium, okay? And Jesus will come back after we've inaugurated the millennium. Okay, that's this this uh, whole world's going to be converted mentality. Um, then there's the the covenant pre-millennialism view, and uh, that view, as I've just explained, is the view that um, Jesus is coming back and then he'll set up a millennial kingdom. And then there's the dispensational pre-millennial king, uh, view, and I know it's a big you know, a lot of verbiage. I didn't invent it. The dispensational premillennial view is that, again, Jesus comes back, he sets up a literal millennium on earth and the important thing about the dispensational premillennial view is that they say that that millennium is pictured in the Old Testament with Israel being a nation that is the top and not the bottom, you know, the head, not the tail, uh, receiving its Davidic king and all the rest of it. Yes? Now, the other views, they generally don't, well, the amillennialists and the postmillennialists definitely don't want that. And most of the covenant or historic premillennialists, they don't want it either. Okay? So, what happens is, that you'll find that an amillennialist, a covenant premillennialist, and a postmillennialist will get on together pretty well. And that's because they basically approach the question of how the uh, New Testament interprets the Old Testament in the same way. but they don't get on with dispensational premillennialists. So when he says here, um, differences of opinion do not reflect varying levels in of intelligence or diligence, um, without taking a, too much of a side swipe at them, that, um, for a dispensational premillennialist, they might think, well, that's not the way that you normally treat us. Okay? Because normally, um, dispensational premillennialists are treated like they're dumb, okay? L- like you know they're stupid, and they they don't know the recent scholarship and so on by this other bunch. In fact, several years ago, John Piper and uh, some other group they had or um, the the, the uh, what's this ministry called? Desiring God Ministries. I think they they yeah they sponsored. A, um, a panel, a conference about different views of the end times, and they had three different views. Okay, our millennialism, post-millennialism, covenant, premillennialism. What happened to the dispensational premillennial? They weren't invited. Okay, why weren't they invited? Well, because they're not thought to be a, a scholarly view, you see, by this other bunch that basically agree on on much of the same interpretation of the bible but he is right that people don't understand their presuppositions we need to be careful about understanding that we do have presuppositions and uh, you know my presupposition when i'm i come to the bible is that um, it means what it says unless it can't mean what it says and when it obviously doesn't mean what it says like the, the hills are clapping their hands and things like that you can figure out what the literal meaning is pretty easily okay and then there are other parts so it means what it says I'm just not I just don't get it you know so there are, there's quite a bit of the Bible that I still am not sure about as far as have I got that understanding correct But, he continues, or they continue in their preface, and they say this. Here, we argue that these prophecies, that is, isn't the Old Testament restoration prophecies, are fulfilled in Christ, and then in brackets, primarily in his first coming and should not be interpreted as being fulfilled in a literalistic manner. So what they're saying is that the Old Testament restoration prophecies about the restoration of Israel, the restoration of the Davidic throne, um, that they should not be taken literally. They have to be interpreted primarily on the basis of the first coming. You want to see how that looks? Okay. So, go to uh, Isaiah. And uh, let's go to Isaiah chapter 11, which is one of my favorite chapters. Okay, so the first ten verses, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch that shall grow out of his roots. Okay, do you see figurative language there? Obviously, there's figurative language, but what's it referring to? Okay, it talks about a... Rod and a branch. Branch is an important uh, term that's used in the Old Testament, identifying a, a figure, messianic figure. Okay, from the stem of Jesse. Who's Jesse? Okay, so Jesse, who is, we know, this is not a figure of speech. This is... david's dad okay all right so whoever the rod and branch is it's a human being okay the spirit of the lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and might the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the lord okay so there's a a bunch of stuff here that is attributed to this person called the branch Um, do you think any of that is symbolic or do you think that no he's actually going to the the spirit of God is going to rest upon him and he is going to be wise and he is going to have understanding and counsel and might and the knowledge of the fear of the Lord Do you think that's all literal yes Yes, so do they (laughs) okay they don't change that bit okay his delight is in the fear of the Lord and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes nor decide by the hearing of his ears but with righteousness he shall judge the poor so you have some poor people that you'll be judging and poor here means kind of not just not having any money but also kind of downtrodden and powerless and so on and decide with equity for the meek of the earth all right And again, you can kind of, whichever side of the fence you might be on, you might say that's literal. Uh, Here's here's where it gets interesting. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. Well, I've I've looked in many people's mouths and never seen a rod in anybody's mouth, okay? Um, But here it says he's going to strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked, um how do we how do we interpret that? That he's just going to speak and the wicked are going to be slayed? And he's going to open his mouth and a rod's going to strike the earth? Obviously there's again, figure of speech, a symbolic idea there, but we're still talking about a person, we're talking about his power, we're talking about the fact that he has the Spirit of God and that he's going to be a judge. So we know that that the rod is a rod of judgment. We know that the breath is a pronouncement of judgment. So if we know that, then we understand that he's going to judge in a, a peremptory but just way. Okay? Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, literally. I mean, is he going to get to his judge's chair, put on this belt of righteousness? No, <laughs> clearly not. But, the, but again, the, the figure is very easy to figure out, isn't it? The strength of a person is around this area. Righteousness is the thing that will be the, the strength of his character. Faithfulness, the belt of his waist, that's uh, parallelism. And now we come to the disputed passages. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. the nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the wean child shall put his hand in the viper's den. All right, let's get this down. So verse two is verse one. Verse 2, okay, we believe that that's um, literal, yeah? This is figurative, but we can figure out the, the, the literal referent pretty easily, yes? Um, verses 3 to, f- to 5, use figures of speech but it basically has to do with um, just judgment of this figure. All right? Are you okay with that? Right, what about these verses there? Therefore, What about verses, um, was it five? Oh, this, this is five, isn't it? Sorry. So what about verses 6 to 8? What do we do with a wolf? And what do we do with the lion? And what do we do with the child and, and the cobras uh, whole? Uh, what do we do with um, the little child leading the calf and the young lion together? Verse 6. Well, here we've got a decision to make. Okay? Because, look, if we believe that we're interpreting the Bible primarily by the first coming of Christ, we know that Christ has not set up on this earth an environment where little children can lead both the calf and the lion together. Okay? We're not there. We, so, if we're saying that this passage is fulfilled in the first coming of Christ, what are we going to have to do? We're going to have to say that the lion isn't really a lion, that the child isn't really a child, and that the calf isn't a, child, a calf. The wolf isn't a wolf. They don't lie down together with the, the lamb. Okay? None of this picturesque, uh, prophecy has anything to do with what God re- is really going to do rather if you're going to interpret this by the first coming and I'll use a different color just to kind of highlight it okay so wolf lamb you know lion calf cobra child okay these are not words that in our world go together very easily okay as far as getting on together so by a first coming what are you going to do with this okay so how are you, how, how are you going to what does this 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 scene in verses 6 through 8 what does it kind of Make you think of? How does it make you feel? Is it Why is it idenic? Why does it make you feel that way? It makes me feel like it's impossible. And it's, it's eternal. It's in the So why can you? All right, it right? but that, that's a presupposition that you've got. But if you're going to interpret it by the first coming of Christ, okay, how would you deal with this? It's, this has been fulfilled, according to. And how are you going to do that? What does it mean when you spiritualize it? Not necessarily. Not that, one of those doesn't have to be something else necessarily. Um, if it was an allegory, it probably would. Okay, but what you're going to do is that you're going to look at the scene. How does it make you feel? Oh, this is pastoral. This this is about peace. This is about, you know, things being reconciled. How do we focus, how do we put that into a first coming scenario? Oh, Jesus died on the cross to make peace between us and God. And so we have inner peace, you see, now with God. And so this, passage is interpreted along those lines do you see Do you see how a first coming interpretation is going to change that now it's not going to change this it's not even going to change or challenge this and it's the only thing it's going to do with verses three to five which talk about just judgment if it's an amillennialist who denies that there's going to be a future millennium, he's going to say, well, Christ is judging now on his throne in heaven in this way. If it's a covenant premillennialist, and post-millennialist will do more or less the same thing, if it's a covenant premillennialist, then what he's going to do is, no, when Christ comes back, he will judge in this way, Okay? Yeah, but then coming to this one, they will all agree. They will agree, basically, that this has got to be fulfilled in the first coming of Christ, and therefore, being fulfilled in the first coming of Christ, it cannot be literally true. You can't look for it in this world and find it. It's pictorial language, they say. What about the next couple of verses? Okay, verses 9 to... Uh, 10. this finishes off the scene well it doesn't actually there's, there's, there's more to it but look at verses 9 and 10 they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea and in that day there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people for the Gentiles shall seek him and his resting place shall be glorious all right verse 9 it says they won't hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain well how do you interpret that by the first coming of Christ you're just going to extend what was said here in verses 6 to 8 to the fact that when you've been reconciled to God you're, you're not going to be hurt anymore you're not in danger of the wrath of God all right And when you get to heaven, the holy mountain, then you're good, okay? That's how they're going to interpret that. But what about, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea? A post-millennialist who believes that the church's job is to bring the kingdom in is going to jump all over that one, aren't they? Okay, because, oh, it says here, that the earth is going to be full of the knowledge of God. So, that means that we'll spread the gospel and convert everybody and this will come through, literally. The church is going to do this. According to the passage, who does this? The the who? Well, not the young child, but the root of Jesse, okay? The branch, that's who you meant that's who you meant, I know, that's who you meant um, so it's, it's the Messiah that does this not the church but what about if you're an R-millennialist and you believe that you know, actually the world is really not getting any better and it's not going to get any better until Jesus comes back therefore we're in the millennium, what do you do with this? what you will do is something like this. Now, I'm not saying they all do this, but the basic thing is that you're going to say all of the elect of God, okay, all of the elect of God will come to know God and therefore, as far as the elect of God all over the world are concerned, they will all come to know God as the waters cover the sea. That's how they'll, they'll interpret that. And then the last verse they will say, well, this person, that's the Messiah, the root of Jesse, you know, verse 1, he stands as a banner to the people. Jesus will call all people to himself, they will say. And the Gentiles come, he calls them to himself into the church, and the resting place is in Christ. So, you, you just winced there. I saw, I saw a wince over there. But that's, you have to interpret it that way from a first coming perspective, do you not? Or something like that. Why can't you interpret it literally from a first coming, uh, from a second, uh, sorry, from a first coming perspective? It doesn't work, does it? Because none of this has actually come through literally. So if, if you're interpreting it from a first coming perspective, and that's what they said here, and I'll say it some more, I'll read it some more to you, then I hope you can see you are forced to take these passages in the Old Testament and make them fit the first coming of Christ. Yeah? Let's read a bit more, just because I don't want to misrepresent them. So, moving on a little bit here. Um <clears throat> Actually, this, this, is, uh, this is classic to me. This is pages 82 and 83. They say this, listen carefully. All of God's promises given in the Old Testament are primarily fulfilled in Jesus' first coming. So, I'm not misrepresenting them. Many who read the Old Testament tend to read certain prophecies, especially Old Testament promises concerning the restoration of ethnic Israel, as being fulfilled not in the first coming of Christ, but only in his second coming. It is our contention that this is a flawed way of reading such prophecies. Then he quotes uh, an influential scholar, uh, Graham Goldsworthy, who says this, quote, I want to assert categorically that all, capital A-L-L, prophecy was fulfilled in the gospel event at the first coming of Jesus. There is a tendency to try to differentiate Old Testament prophecies of the end into two groups. Those applying to the first coming and those applying to the second coming. This is a mistake. A more biblical perspective is one that recognizes that the the distinction between the first and second coming is not in what happens but in how it happens nothing will happen at the return of Christ that has not already happened in him at his first coming and then they continue that's a, a quotation from Goldsworthy's book preaching the whole bible um, from I think it's uh, pre- preaching the whole Bible uh, from Christ or something like that and uh, that's not the exact uh, book but uh, I can't remember the top of my head they continue this way although the second coming of Christ is important well, good and often emphasized in the New Testament it is not the climax of redemptive history emphasizing the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies as taking place only in the second coming minimizes the greatest work of God, the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Okay. So here you can see that they get the logic. If you are going to interpret the Bible by the first coming, then you cannot take the Old Testament prophecies of the restoration of Israel literally. Okay? That would be a mistake, they believe, to do that. And then they say this at the end, and I'm gonna just concentrate on this last paragraph, and kinda, I wanna break it down a little bit. Although the second coming of Christ is important, and often emphasized in the New Testament, it is not the climax of redemptive history. Now there's a clue there. They say redemptive history. You see, to them, it's all about, the Bible is all about the history of redemption. Okay? It's all about the history of redemption. And so, you have to fit in all of the prophecies, all the prophecies into the history of redemption. And the history of redemption, obviously, the big focal point is the cross of Christ. So that's how their their mind works. Okay, that is the logic that they use. The history of redemption we see it in patterns in the Exodus, and we see it in you know, sacrificial system and things like that. That comes to its culmination at the cross of Jesus Christ and of his, his resurrection. It is finished. It's all done. That's where we need to see fulfillment. But In my opinion, others too, but in my opinion, even though redemptive history is extremely important in the Bible, that is not the big overall picture of what's going on in the Bible. It's a huge part of it, obviously, but it is not, there is something that's actually bigger than that. And what's bigger than the redemptive history is God's creation project. Okay, what I mean by that, God made the world, he allowed the world to fall, so this is where the redemption comes back in, okay? But he will redeem the world and then he will rule over the world and then um, the world will be delivered up to God by his son Jesus at the end of this world's history. And then we'll have a new heavens and a new earth. It's actually a bigger picture than the redemption of man. It has to do with the creation relationship between the persons of the Godhead. All right? Their overall plan, their overall strategy for history generally, which includes redemption. If you look at it that way, then you're not going to look down and say redemptive history, which means first coming of Christ. You're going to look at it as a project that says that is not finished yet, but the great change in the project is when all of the human the wicked human governments and all of their corruption and all of the the, the history of the world and of its peoples is swept out of the way under the righteous kingship of the one who made it all and for whom it was all made, and that is Jesus. Do you see? And his work marks a huge change in the history of the world. But it actually, what it does, is it, it, uh, it makes the creation project take the right turn so that it is in the now in the path of glorifying god finally under the stewardship of jesus so you see the difference approaches one approach will focus you on the first coming but the second approach i've just described where that where's that going to focus you on the second coming okay So, you've got to be careful to, you know, when you read these people, it sounds good. So, you've got to kind of think through some of the terms they use. Also, they say this. They say, um, emphasizing the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies has taken place only in the second coming. Only in the second coming? Who says that? Who says that Old Testament prophecies are only fulfilled in the second coming nobody says that, that's a misrepresentation ok what that, what's that doing what that's doing is poisoning the well that's trying to say that if you don't believe what we believe then you must believe that it's only at the second coming and then of course you're kind of despising the cross And uh, one more quotation here, let's see, and then we'll, we'll, we'll go to an example that is used, but they say this, this is page 32, The New Testament appropriation of Old Testament promises, the way that it uses it, promises, themes, prophecies, and types, cues us as to how to read Scripture as a unified but progressive revelation. Gentry and Wellam, and that's a book that I'll introduce you to, it's a book called uh, Kingdom Through Covenant, Write that quote, the New Testament's interpretation of the Old Testament becomes definitive in helping us interpret the details of the Old Testament, since later revelation brings with it greater clarity and understanding. In other words, we must carefully allow the New Testament to show us how the Old Testament is brought to fulfillment in Christ. End quote. Now, when they say fulfillment in Christ, what do you think they mean? The first coming. And it's very clear in kingdom through covenant that they mean the first coming of Christ. Okay? Now, it's this sounds really kind of spiritual and who can disagree with what what they just said? You know, the New Testament, because it comes after the Old Testament, obviously it throws light and interpretation on the Old Testament. So, we should just follow the New Testament, shouldn't we? There's a problem with that. We don't interpret the New Testament the same way as these guys either. You see? Do you think these guys believe that um, the book of Revelation is to be interpreted literally? Do you think they believe the numbers in the book of Revelation are literal numbers? You know, the 144,000 from uh, all the tribes of the children of Israel. Do they take that literally? No, they don't. Do they take the thousand years in Revelation 20 literally? We saw last week. No, they don't. That's the problem, you see. Just saying, oh, we read the New Testament and we we uh, just we get an understanding of what the new testament means and we then we let that reinterpret the old testament that is not uh telling the whole truth what they mean is our understanding of the new testament is read back into the old testament and if you disagree with our interpretation of the new testament then again you're wrong because of your assumptions and your presuppositions. And they will often cast aspersions, saying, because you believe in wooden literalism. Okay? They do that because they are absolutely convinced in a first coming interpretation of prophecy. Now, are you following me so far? Okay. Let's have a look at some examples here. I'm going to take this off. And uh, we'll write some examples here of, and we won't do many of them, of how the Old Testament interprets itself. Okay, why would why would we do that? Well, because consider this. Okay, you've got uh, the Pentateuch. That's all written by one guy, yeah. Okay, written by Moses, circa because we we're not liberals, we believe uh, around about 1450 BC. Okay, we don't believe it was uh, 1200, 1250 BC. You know, because we're trying to stick it into uh, the revised Egyptian chronology. We don't believe in the revised Egyptian chronology. We believe in the Bible so the Pentateuch, uh, before the Pentateuch actually there's there's this book okay, not Jab, Job and uh, Jab to his friends and you know, we don't know but possibly around that time 1750 BC, that makes it incredibly old um Then we have, let's see, well, we have the Psalms, okay? Well, they were written in different times, but because a lot of the Psalms were written by who? David, and David wrote circa 1000 BC, okay? And then we have prophets, and we have people like Isaiah and Jeremiah, Okay, and, um, you know, Isaiah is writing, um, well, he's, he's an 8th century prophet, so 700s. And Jeremiah, he's a 6th century prophet. Okay? Uh, yeah, 6th century. So, what you have here is you have 1450 BC, you come down 450 years to David, that's a lot of time. You come back a a further 200, 250 years to Isaiah's time, okay? So we're now at 700 years. You come back to Jeremiah, okay? You're at around 900 years. You see, from this time. So that is a lot of time, And if you can test the way someone like Isaiah or the psalmist uses stuff from the Pentateuch, then uh, you can see whether they spiritualize earlier prophecies or not, can't you? What about the New Testament? Any idea when Paul wrote his epistles? The earliest one is about 49 AD. Okay, that would be 1 Thessalonians, Galatians at 50 AD. Uh, what about the last one? Uh, 60 Approximately 61, 63, 65. So, 49 to 65. That's not very many years, 16 years. That is right, isn't it? Um 16 years. Then the Gospels, I believe that the Gospels were written, Matthew was written first. That makes me an idiot in a lot of these people's view. But I think a guy called John Wenham has argued this very, very well. It's also the traditional view of the church. That's why we have Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Um, Matthew, I believe, was written around 41 AD. Okay, John, written around about between 85 and 90 AD, the last book written is the book of Revelation, 1895-96. So from 40 or 41 AD, that's Matthew, that's the earliest writing, even if on, on my view, to the book of Revelation, you've just got over, just over 50 years. For the whole writing of the New Testament. Compare that with this. Okay? So if these guys don't change the Word of God for centuries, what do you think the New Testament guys, in half a century, do you think they're going to change it? The likelihood is that they're not. Okay? The likelihood is yes, they are going, because this is their scripture, they're going to use it in different ways, just like we do. In fact, just like uh Western society did, okay, Western society they would they would allude to scriptures, use scriptures, because their heads were full of the Bible. Okay? And they use it out of context very often, but they would still still use it to make a point. Okay? Right, so let's have a look at uh at a couple of things. Let's go to Genesis chapter chapter fifteen. So Genesis 15, and you know this passage, um, we went through it in previous courses in some detail, but uh, God makes a covenant with Abraham, and uh, God enters the covenant, Abraham does not enter the covenant at all, and... He says uh, this. We'll just uh, go from verse 12. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said, that's God, said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. What's he, what on earth can he be talking about? What's he talking about? he's talking about the exodus okay here's abram he's around about 2000 bc now moses wrote the book okay but but abraham is before job abraham's about 2000 bc so he says that that your descendants are going to go into a land that's not theirs and they're going to serve them for four centuries uh spiritual Or literal. Literal. So when and I haven't got it here, so when Moses goes and he calls the people, okay the people of Israel, he alludes to the Abrahamic covenant. Because he takes it literally. That's pretty easy to take it literally when you've been down there four centuries, yeah? All right. And then also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions, literal or non-literal. Literal in both senses. Yes, they came out with lots of stuff, lots of gold and you know, clothes and all sorts, TV sets. <laughs> um, now, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age, but in the fourth generation... They shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it came to pass, when the sun went down, it was dark, that, behold, there appeared a smoking oven and burning torch that passed between those pieces, the pieces of the divided animals that you read about earlier in the chapter. This is God making a covenant, a self-maledictory oath to do what he's what He's going to say now, which is, On the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your descendants... I have given this land. Abraham is in Canaan. This land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cabanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Okay? But this, this land, in chapter 14, he had him survey the land. Okay, well chapter 13. So we had him survey the land. Um, so let's look at the uh, Psalms. <clears throat> and Psalm 106, I believe, or 105. I always get these two mixed up. Psalm 105. Psalm 105. Okay? This is not a Psalm of David, so it probably comes after the time of David. And it says in verse 6 O seed of Abraham, his servant, you children of Jacob, his chosen ones, he is the Lord our God, his judgments are in all the earth, he remembers his covenant forever the word which he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac, and he confirmed it to Jacob for a statute uh, to Israel as an everlasting covenant. Wow, I mean, you know, if you want to underline something and make a point, he's just really made the point, hasn't he? Saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as the allotment of your inheritance. Is alluding there to the Abrahamic covenant and the gift of the land. Thousand years later, sorry, four hundred and fifty years later, at least, probably a lot more than that. So you can see that that the um, the interpreter of the Book of Genesis, the Psalmist, has not changed the meaning of the prophecy, has he? And you find this all the way through. Let's go to Numbers, okay? Numbers chapter twenty five. <coughs> this is, uh, with Phineas Balaam. Um, What what Balaam does is that he blesses Israel and Balak said, I didn't hire you to do that. I hired you to curse them. He couldn't do that with his office, so he uh, he did it by his guile. And what he did is he, in chapter 25, he had the Israelite people that basically um, enter into relationships with the Canaanites around them. And we read here, That um, verse 1 of chapter 25. Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. Uh, They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. We find out actually later on the New Testament tells us this is Balaam that devised this idea. So, the New Testament is giving us extra insight and revelation into this, but it is not changing it, okay? That's what I call progressive revelation, right there. So, Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. Then the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaves of the people and hang the offenders before the Lord out in the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel so Moses said to the judges of Israel every one of you kill his men who were joined to Baal of Peor and indeed one of the children of Israel came and presented to his brethren a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel um, so you can understand that this is a high handed sin I mean he thinks he's going to get away with this which means there are lots of people doing the same thing thinking, well, Moses doesn't have any power over this at all. Uh, so he did that he, in, in, inside of the children of Israel who were weeping at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Now when Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose from among the congregation, and took a javelin in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman through her body. So the plague was stopped among the children of Israel. And those who died in the plague were 24,000. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the children of Israel because he was zealous with my zeal among them, so that I did not consume the children of Israel in my zeal. Therefore say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace. And it shall be to him and his descendants after him a covenant of an everlasting priesthood because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the children of Israel okay there's the covenant okay there's the promise of God go to Psalm 106 Psalm 106 Psalm 106 is a, uh, a recitation of Israel's unfaithfulness okay and God's grace so psalm 106 verse 28 are you there okay it says they joined themselves also to Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices made to the dead that's extra revelation okay but it doesn't change it okay thus they provoked him to anger with their deeds and the plague broke out among them then Phinehas stood up and intervened and the plague was stopped and that was accounted to him for righteousness to all generations forevermore referring there to what? the covenant that God made with Phinehas and, to, and with his descendants again this is 500 years after the event Okay, let's go and look in the prophets, go to Amos, chapter 9, Amos chapter 9. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the ploughman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes him who sows seed, the mountains shall drip with sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it I will bring back the captives of my people Israel they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them they shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them they shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them I will plant them in their land and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them says the Lord when did he give them some land? Abrahamic covenant, didn't he? So Amos, and we're not sure, Amos is an, is an early prophet, we're not sure when he is, but let's say 9th century. Uh, again, he hasn't, he, he's given you added revelation, but he hasn't changed the revelation, has he? What about uh, somebody who is a, basically a contemporary of, of Jeremiah? Well, in fact, let's, let's go to Jeremiah. Let's go to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 33. So Jeremiah, that's just before Amos, 33, you have this prophecy, this is, uh, I love this prophecy. Verse 15 says, we'll go for verse 14. Jeremiah thirty three fourteen. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time I will cause to grow to David a branch of righteousness. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. Do you see the branch there, by the way? Yeah? Okay. Okay. Uh, in those days Judah shall be saved and Jerusalem will dwell safely and this is the name by which she will be called the Lord our righteousness for thus says the Lord David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel that's the Davidic covenant okay which we haven't looked at but Jeremiah here is is repeating what we know about the Davidic covenant which was made with David about 450 years before this Nor shall the priests, the Levites, lack a man to offer burnt offerings before me, to kindle grain offerings and to sacrifice continually. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that there will not be day and night in their season, then my covenant may also be broken With David, my servant, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and with the Levites, the priests, my ministers. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, nor the sand of the sea measured, so will I multiply the descendants of David, my servant, and the Levites who minister to me. And then it continues, and in verse um, 26, he mentions the descendants of Jacob and David. He mentions here the descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Alluding here to the Davidic covenant and also to the Abrahamic covenant. Okay? Why did I quote a passage that talked about the Levites? Because Jeremiah is preparing the people to go into captivity and what is Nebuchadnezzar and his army going to do with the temple? They're going to destroy it but, Jeremiah says that God is going to remember his covenant with the Levites. Which covenant could that be? Well, Phineas was a Levite. He was a, a priest, okay? And it, was an, and it was his descendants. Ezekiel, go to Ezekiel. Uh, chapter forty four ezekiel forty four this has to have to do with the temple vision of ezekiel at the end of his book okay and uh Look at chapter 44, verse 1. Then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces toward the east, but it was shut. And the Lord said to me, This gate shall be shut, it shall not be open, and no man shall enter by it, because the Lord God of Israel has entered by it, therefore it shall be shut. Uh, He's entered in it, by the way, in chapter 43. Okay? Chapter 43, when the glory of God comes from the east and goes into the holy of holies that's uh, in that as for the prince because he is the prince he may sit in it to eat bread before the lord he shall enter by way of the vestibule of the gateway and out go out the same way and then it says here in verse 9 Thus says the Lord God, No foreigner, uncircumcised in heart or uncircumcised in flesh, shall enter my sanctuary, including any foreigner who is among the children of Israel. And the Levites who went far from me when Israel went astray, who strayed away from me after their idols, they shall bear their iniquities. Yet, They shall be ministers in my sanctuary as gatekeepers of the house and ministers of the house. They shall slay the burnt offering and the sacrifice of the people, and they shall stand before them to minister to them. Okay, but verse 13, they shall not come near to me to minister to me as priest, nor shall they come near any of my holy things, nor into the most holy place. Nevertheless, verse 14, I will make them keep charge of the temple for all its work and for all that has to be done in it. But the priests, the Levites, the sons of Zadok, verse 15, who kept charge of my sanctuary when the children of Israel went astray from me, they shall come near me to minister to me and they shall stand before me to offer to me the fat and the blood, says the Lord God, they shall enter my sanctuary and they shall come near to my table to minister to me and they shall keep my charge. Okay. Uh, We could track who uh, the uh, uh, the Zadok and the Zadokites, guess who they are a descendant of? Phineas. Phineas. Phineas, exactly. So here in this temple in Ezekiel, you have certain Levites Okay, who can minister, but they can't minister to God. They can just minister to the people. And they can tidy up the place. Okay, and then you have Zadokites who are connected to Phineas, and they minister to God in the sanctuary. So this in the Jeremiah passage, Ezekiel's written in the Babylonian captivity. Okay. He goes away around 505 BC in the second wave. So, he's now in Babylon circa like 475 BC. He therefore is nearly a thousand years removed from the promise of God to Phinehas. Okay and yet here he is and we have a sanctuary uh, we have the god in the sanctuary if you look in the context you'll see it's edenic conditions and the descendants of phineas are serving god the old testament covers a lot of territory but I could I could show you with the Davidic covenant, I could show you with the um, the, the, the priestly covenant, and the repetitions of the new covenant, and the, they do not alter the promises. In fact, the last book in the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, in chapter three. has this passage in it. Chapter 3, Behold, I send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. Okay, now that's fulfilled with John the Baptist. Okay, that's actually quoted by Mark. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now look at verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? Well, Lots of people endured the first coming of Christ. I mean, it wasn't much of a big deal at all as far as impacting the world. Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner. This is not a baby Jesus. Okay? Someone sitting on a throne as a judge. This is what this is. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. That's the last book of the Old Testament and the sons of Levi are going to be cleansed so that they can offer sacrificial offerings to God. That didn't happen in the first coming of Christ, okay? I mean, As if I have to tell you that. And Jesus never sat on any seat as a judge to judge people and purify them, did he? So, this is a, an illusion, clear allusion to the covenant with Phineas, okay, saying that God will prepare the Levites so that they can minister to him when Christ comes as a judge and as a king. Alright. What I'm, I've shown you briefly, and we could do this, you know, ad nauseum, quite honestly. What I've shown you briefly is that you, you can go through the history of the Old Testament down to circa 500 BC, 450, whenever Malachi wrote, and, uh, from the period of 2000 BC you have 1500 years approximately and the prophecies do not change you can find uh, excuse me you can find Jeremiah you can find Ezekiel and uh, Zechariah they promise the land to Israel they don't change the Old Testament at all what was previously revealed Now one of the things these guys actually say is they say the Old Testament does change earlier prophecy but they don't give you an example and there's a good reason they don't give you an example is that there isn't one. Okay? The Old Testament doesn't do that. Not as far as I'm aware. I've never seen it. Now there are cases where the Old Testament makes a prediction like Elijah will make a prediction about the death of Ahab. Okay? Okay? And then Ahab repents. Okay, and, and, and dons sackcloth and ashes and so on, and starts brooding. And so God changes that prophecy. Right? But we're not talking about covenants here. Okay? We're talking about just a doom that's been put on a particular man. And by the way, he does die in a similar fashion than the original prophecy but it is changed somewhat by his repentance, showing that God is merciful. All right? So, if we're going to read the Bible from front to back, which I think is a pretty good idea to do, and we're going to traverse all of this history, and we're going to see that the prophecies do not change that they augment and supplement each other, but the actual content of the prophecy remains constant, then that's going to create, and uh, those of you who've had previous courses with me know that I love this word. I think it's very important. I'll take this off so I can have room to put it up here. It's going to create this. an expectation and that expectation okay is based on not just God saying it once but God repeating it over a 1500 year period that's a good reason to believe it and this expectation is brought into the New Testament okay okay To give you an example, Acts chapter 1, verse 6. The disciples ask the resurrected Christ who has been teaching them about the kingdom, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus doesn't answer the question straight on. He just says it's not for you to know the times of the seasons. He doesn't say no. He just says it's not for you to know the time that that's going to happen but the expectation of the disciples who've been with Jesus, the greatest teacher that ever lived, um, is that the prophecies of the Old Testament will come through. There's a continuity in their thoughts, okay, from the Old Testament that they've read uh, to the teaching that they've heard from Jesus and it comes out in that question to the resurrected Jesus and Jesus does not quench that expectation which means, this is very, very important, it means that when we get into the church period and when we get into Paul's epistles and so on, we're going to have to tread carefully and we're going to have to uh, balance two ideas. The first idea is the continuity of God's static revelation over 1,500 years or actually now 2,000 years since Abraham, okay? 2050 years. And um, so there's that with something that's new that wasn't in the Old Testament. And that is the reality of the church, the body of Christ, okay? And how do those how do we measure those two and how do we get those two things the expectation and all of those prophecies all those predictions and the the static interpretation of that in the Old Testament how do we take that and make it work within the church the people that believe that you interpret everything by the first coming of Christ say that well you don't what you do is that you change all of that 1500 year witness and those covenants that are behind them, that are binding on God, you just change them. Or do you seek to tread more carefully and say, well, hold on a minute, hold on a minute, is there a way of keeping the expectations and interpreting the way that they're going to use the Old Testament in the New Testament. And I take the, the second view. Um, in their book, uh, Bandy and Merkel point to a uh, a couple of examples. The first one is uh, Isaiah chapter 13, so if you'll turn there, Isaiah chapter 13 verses 9 and 10 and then verse 13. Now, certainly, this passage um, has some issues, okay? But we'll just read it. It's against Babylon. You'll see verse 1. So, that what that does is it narrows it down to Babylon and its environs. Verse 9, Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with both wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate and he will destroy its sinners from it the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light the sun will be darkened in its going forth and the moon will not cause its light to shine now does that is that something you remember from the new testament In the New Testament, you see something like that with Jesus' Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. Do you want to go there so I can show you? Go to Matthew 24. Keep your finger in Isaiah 13. Now, Matthew 24, Jesus is talking about his second coming. We know he's talking about his second coming because he's already there in his first coming. Okay, (laughs) all right. And uh, it says here in verse um, twenty-nine: Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light; the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth shall mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Okay? So he's alluding to that passage in Isaiah 13, and there's a number of others that are like that in the Old Testament. He's also alluding to uh, Daniel chapter 7 in that, in that uh, passage. Okay, what are they going to say about verses 9 and 10? They say this, the prophets often employed figurative or cosmic language to describe the great works of God in history. What they're going to say is that that language is figurative. Okay, that language is figurative. Now look at verse 13, because they throw that one in there. Therefore, I will shake the heavens and the earth will move out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. Well, they're going to say, you really believe the earth's going to be shifted out of its orbit? Well, no, probably not. I mean, might. Might. That's up to God. I mean, he can certainly do it, can't he? So, I don't, I don't have a problem if God wants to do that in a second, it doesn't bother me, you know but this is a a um, doom pronounced against Babylon and maybe here just the earth that's being spoken of is not the whole earth, maybe it's talking about the area of around Babylon which by the way there are prophecies, in fact in the, uh, I think in the next chapter (laughs) Um, and in uh chapter twenty-three, twenty-four of Isaiah that speak to this and say that area is going to be turned into pitch. Okay? Into pitch and brimstone. So if the land is going to shake, then yeah, I guess in order for it to be turned into a land of pitch, there will be some pretty big earthquakes and so on, some pretty devastating shaking going on. But this is an example that they've given of figurative or cosmic, what they call, language. And what they're doing is they're trying to say, don't take that literally. Now, of course, if you're not to take that literally in Isaiah 13, then you're not to take Christ literally in Matthew 24, because he uses some of the same language. And you're not to take Mark uh, Jesus in Mark or, or Jesus in Luke, literally. And you're not to, to take uh, the book of Revelation, literally, either, in chapter 19. When it speaks about some of the same things. You see how this happens, see what, what starts to happen when you have this, this tendency to want to convert what the plain language is saying because you use a first coming uh, interpretation. They go on and they say this. They say While much of the Bible can be read and interpreted and interpreted literally, certain parts of the Bible, especially poetry, prophecy, and apocalyptic literature, are not meant to be interpreted literally. Hold on, certain parts? Certain parts? You mean none of the covenants are to be interpreted literally so that's a whole bunch in genesis quite a bit in uh, numbers and then a whole bunch in the prophets is not to be interpreted literally poetry that's the whole book of psalms and a lot of the prophets write in poetry isaiah writes in poetry and there are poetic strains throughout most of the prophetic writings okay I mean, the two biggest books in the Old Testament are what? What's the biggest book, the longest book in the Old Testament? Bet you get this wrong. It's Jeremiah. Jeremiah is the longest book in the Old Testament and Psalms, the next longest. Okay? Lots of poetry in there. But and they say certain parts of the bible especially poetry prophecy apocalyptic literature well to them that's going to be ezekiel and daniel and zechariah okay are not to make, be interpreted literally well hold on you're being a bit disingenuous you've just taken away actually a whole chunk of the old testament and said it's not to be interpreted literally and only a certain part certain bits are to be interpreted literally to be left alone That's what this uh, approach does. Then they give another example. All must admit that Amos 9, 11-15 uses non-literal language when the prophet says, quote, the language shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it, verse 13. Well, of course. Figurative language is used to communicate a reality. God will abundantly bless his people by supplying all their needs. Hold on a minute. Is that the interpretation? Go to Amos, chapter 9. We were there uh, not long ago. Amos, chapter 9. Let's try and get a little closer, shall we, with this interpretation. Is it so general? God providing all their needs? Is that what it means? after Joel, Amos chapter 9. The mountain shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. Well, hold on. That's not the whole of verse 13. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. The mountain shall drip with sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. And then it says, I'm going to bring back my captives Israel as well. And they're going to plant vineyards and so on. This is talking about the blessing on the productivity of the land of Israel. It doesn't, it's not about God's going to provide all their needs. It's about the fact that their agriculture is going to be incredibly blessed. So that there's a, it's hyper-productivity that he's talking about. Yes, there's figurative language, but it's not uh, difficult to figure out the literal reference here, is it? And then they go on and say this. The issue then, so they've just given you a wrong interpretation. Okay, they gave you a generic interpretation. So they see how they've set the issue up. And the reason they gave a generic interpretation is they cannot give you a more uh, specific interpretation, because it's too Israel-based and too second-coming-based. you see? And then they say the issue then is whether the physical blessing is a metaphor for the greater spiritual blessings we receive in Christ and His kingdom. Well, hold on a cotton of minute here, because <laughs> because first of all, first of all, yes, there are spiritual blessings that we receive okay among those spiritual blessings are food in our mouths okay and money in our pockets and a, he- a roof over our heads uh, yes you've received spiritual blessings but guy, uh, uh, guys you need to understand this if you don't understand this already if these spiritual blessings are all there is to it I don't think much of the salvation Okay, Because we're still going to grow old and die, and we're still going to you know, maybe have violence done to us, and we're still going to be persecuted and we're still going to have all this other stuff. What are the spiritual blessings that, that are being spoken of? Just that, oh, by the way, yeah, you can count yourself uh, fortunate, I know you're you're in a bad condition, but at least you're a son of God or a daughter of God, or is it? There's an expectation from that language of spiritual blessings for what's coming in the future. And those are not just spiritual, they're also physical. You're going to see God, you're going to see the glory, you're going to see the kingdom. Your body will be physically transformed. Those are spiritual blessings. Do you see? what they're doing here is that they're offsetting spiritual from physical so that they can tell you that this passage in Amos and a whole bunch more in the Old Testament don't mean what they say. They should be interpreted as as God abundantly blessing. Now, by the way, on this... And I don't expect you to pick it up, but they've said this passage in Amos chapter 9, which is a new covenant uh, prediction of the blessing of Israel and it becoming, uh, the you know, th- th- basically this passage says that Israel will be the great nation and be super blessed and Jerusalem will be uh, the great city. Uh, David set up on his throne and everything. What they say is that this just means God's going to provide your needs. And then, once they've got that interpretation, have you noticed they interpret it again? They don't stop with that interpretation. They then make that a figurative uh, interpretation, which they reinterpret to mean that it's a metaphor for greater spiritual blessings so they've interpreted it twice they've said what this means is actually that it's that it's god providing your needs and then god providing your needs actually means spiritual blessings now i don't expect that you would catch that but I, but i caught it so they've interpreted it twice Anything but believe what it says. Now, folks, the chances of them getting the right interpretation when they're not following what the words say in their context and saying it just means this kind of generic, boring, God's going to provide your your needs. Um, which you said before, by the way, many times. Um And then reinterpreting that to mean spiritual blessings is, I think, very slim. You're really out on a limb. You're no longer connected to the text of Scripture. You're connected to their interpretation of the text of Scripture. So, your faith is no longer in what the Bible says. It's in what they say the Bible says. God does not say to us, okay, that... um, without faith in New Testament scholars' interpretations or reinterpretations of the Bible, you cannot please God. It says, without faith, you cannot please God. Faith in what? Faith in what God says, obviously. So, if a first coming interpretation of these Old Testament passages and many many more doesn't work maybe your presupposition of a first coming interpretation is wrong and maybe you need to look at the second coming now when you look at the second coming I know we've got to go soon when you look at the second coming lo and behold things start to come together so, you uh, you go to the book of, uh, let's go, since we're in the Minor Prophets, let's go to Micah. Okay, so if you turn over to the right a few, you've got Obadiah, Jonah, go to Micah. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it says, you know this passage, but you, Bethlehem Ephrata, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. You see that? Now, the reason that you know that is that Herod asked the Jews, the Jewish rulers, where Christ should be born he wanted to know where that was the question and they quoted that passage Bethlehem so yes he was born in Bethlehem but is that all that that passage means? what about him to be ruler in Israel? was Jesus ever ruler in Israel? in fact he he said I didn't want the kingdom Okay, they wanted to make him king so what about the first part was of this passage in the birth in Bethlehem was fulfilled literally. What about the second part? Could that be fulfilled literally? Not in a first coming interpretation, but yes, in a second coming interpretation. So that what you have here is that you have the first coming and the second coming sandwiched together. Do you see that? Okay. Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, just two more, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Alright, so we all know that, yeah? Child, well, is that first coming or second coming? Born, that's obviously the first coming. What about the rest of this stuff? The government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his kingdom and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform that. First or second coming? What if you make it the first coming? What throne's he on? He's on the throne in heaven. That means the throne of David is all of a sudden now the throne of God. Um it means that the kingdom is not really on this earth, or if it is, he's not ordering and establishing it very much, is he? Unless the church is the kingdom, and that's not really order- being ordered and established very well either, quite honestly. Church spends most of its time in apostasy, unfortunately. But if, you, if you're if not looking through a first coming lens and you look at a second coming lens, all of a sudden, this clicks with the expectations that you read all through the Old Testament. And, by the way, it clicks with the Apostles' question in Acts chapter 1. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Clicks very well with that. One more. Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61. First two verses: The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, the day and the day of vengeance of God. To comfort all who mourn. To console all those who mourn in Zion. Give them beauty for ashes and so on. Um, You know this passage because Jesus quoted it in the synagogue in Nazareth, Luke chapter 4. Okay, they gave him the scroll, okay, and he sat down and he opened it and he opened his mouth and began to teach, uh, sorry, he began to read this passage and then he cut off at um, middle of verse 2 to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the scroll was folded again or ground up again handed it to the guy, the porter and then said today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing pointing to himself first or second coming first, that's easy isn't it why didn't he finish the quotation exactly because this verse like the previous verse in Isaiah 9 like the Micah verse and like quite a lot of verses in the Old Testament combines the first and the second coming but where's the majority of the emphasis the majority of the emphasis actually is on the second coming the day of vengeance and the comforting of those who mourn and bringing comfort to Zion and bringing beauty for ashes verse 3 Okay. same as in Isaiah 9.6 there's a, a, a bit there that talks about the the son is given the son is born and then there's a whole bunch of stuff about the government and about the d- throne of David second coming so yes the first coming's there and it's important but there's a second coming interpretation that's got to be taken into account and when you do what you see is two things, and this is where we're going to end. You see that, as far as the Old Testament prophets are concerned, there's one work of God, a one work of Christ. Okay, it's one work. He comes. Okay, he's born, and he, um, and he rules. When we get to Isaiah 53 and Daniel chapter 9, we also see he dies (laughs) As as a substitute, not for himself. So, that's got to be sandwiched in there too, okay? So, the prophetic picture of Christ is basically that he is born, born of a virgin, by the way, Isaiah chapter 7, that he dies for others and then he rules that's the picture it's one there's not two comings Okay. there's not two comings so from their perspective it's one work what our perspective is now is that half of the work's been done but the second part of the work of that one work awaits to be done the question is is the rest of the New Testament written to be interpreted on the basis of half of the work of Christ completed at the cross and resurrection or the full uh, consummation of that work at the second coming I take you back to what I said at the beginning which is they believe it's a redemptive history I believe it's bigger than the redemptive history it has to do with God's glory and the project of creation if it's the former then you take a first coming interpretation of the Old Testament and you just spiritualize everything including Matthew 24 and book of Revelation if it's the second you don't need to spiritualize anything Do you see? You have this expectation that remains. You just keep the expectation and you deal with the New Testament and its use of the Old Testament on the basis of this. Take a second coming interpretation of these passages unless, of course, the allusion is clearly to the the first coming. All right. I'm sure your brains are fried. (laughs) Any questions before we close tonight? Yes, Chris. Um, question about, I mean, I'm sure I'm jumping ahead and you can tell me be quiet, um, but thinking about Babylon and where it talks about Babylon in the book of Revelation. Yes. And how do you look at that and whether that's interested to see? First coming, uh, a first coming interpretation will say Babylon is not Babylon, Babylon is Rome. Mm-hmm. Okay. Second coming interpretation will vary somewhat, but most of them will say Babylon is Babylon, a rebuilt Babylon. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah. Probably can't be answered, but giving all this information and also the evolution of how churches have evolved from the expectation of the scripture to this new interpretation of Picking out that which you don't want, or trying to explain something that doesn't make sense to you, making it make sense to people who want to hear something that maybe makes sense. How does that happen apart from they don't believe what God Um, says? Yeah. Well, the question is, uh, the people that believe that God doesn't mean what he says half the time, literally. Uh, how can they be godly spiritual people when they don't believe what God says? And the thing is, because they do believe um, the important stuff literally. Okay, They believe literally that Jesus was virgin born. They believe that Jesus literally died on the cross and literally rose from the dead and that he's literally coming back. They believe that the church is his body and they believe that uh, they are literally to live They've literally died to their old self and are alive in Christ. They are literally not connected to Adam anymore but connected to Christ in the new life. They believe all of that literally. And because they believe literally that God says be sanctified and be holy and live a righteous life, okay? It's on the basis of that literal discipleship view that they are spiritual people. If they spiritualize that stuff, they wouldn't be. Do you see? All right, next week, uh, what we're going to do is, uh, you you learn a lot of stuff in this, okay? Next week, what we're going to do is that we're going to look again at the background of things. And we're going to look at the two major systems, if we may call them that, of interpretation, of theology, uh, approach to the whole Bible. Okay, and how that affects interpretation. One of them is covenant theology. So if you want to know what covenant theology is, we'll be taking, you know, nearly an hour to take you through a a whiz-bang overview of covenant theology and then we'll be looking at dispensational theology or biblical covenantal theology is is my approach, which doesn't take as long. Okay, so that's what we're going to be doing Next week. It's very important if you can make that, uh, that course, that class next week. That's a really important one as far as understanding presuppositions. Okay?